Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome to Putting On the Mind of Christ. Each week at this time, we go into the Ave Maria CD archives and pull down a talk or two to see what our Lord might have to say to us. Many of these talks are recorded at area conferences. Most of the speakers are nationally known, but some may have been recorded by a brother or sister sitting in front of or behind you at Mass. Ave Maria Radio presents this program of God's Word to His people. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer for Putting On the Mind of Christ. There are many views of the world and what's happening in it. We all have, or should have, our own personal worldviews. Is there a single Christian worldview? What is the Catholic worldview? What can we, the Catholic faithful, do to enhance the Catholic worldview? Christ the King Church in Ann Michigan, recently started an adult education series on the Catholic worldview, and they took that theme as a stepping-off point for their 2012 parish mission. The title was, Lord, that we might see the glory and majesty of the Church, and our call to form in ourselves a Catholic worldview. Father Ed Friedi, the pastor of Christ the King Church, led off the series with his Tuesday evening talk, Seeing Things Jesus' Way, Turning the World Right Side Up. Obviously, he was thinking about how the developed world has gotten turned upside down by the political power brokers and those pushing their so-called politically correct agendas. I refer to these people as being politically incorrect. On future programs, we'll hear Deacon Dan Foley and Professor Barbara Morgan. We'll get started with Father Ed's talk right after this break. After our second break, we'll hear the question and answer session that followed Father Ed's talk and an observation on the difficulties of evangelizing in this increasingly secular society by Toronto's new Cardinal Thomas Collins. Stay with us. You're listening to Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. This is Henry Root, your host and program producer. Our speaker on this program is Father Ed Friedy. Father Ed has been pastor of Christ the King Church since 1997. It is a personal parish of the Diocese of Lansing. Its identity is taken from the charismatic spirituality of its members, some of whom have been longtime leaders in the Catholic charismatic renewal around the world. Father Freddy has earned three bachelor's degrees, two master's degrees, is well centered in sacred theology, and he's working on his doctorate in scripture. He is a member of the adjunct faculty of Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit and of Siena Heights University. 
He serves on a number of boards and is a member of numerous ecclesial and secular associations, including the Order of the Most Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, where he served as priest knight commander. Father Red's 2012 parish mission talk is Seeing Things Jesus' Way, Turning the World Right Side Up. Here is Father Red Freedy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the greatness of your love for us. We ask you, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to see things your way. The scripture promises that we have the mind of Christ. Let us embrace that. Give us the grace we need to see things from your perspective and to live for you. For you are Lord forever and ever. Amen. If I could just ask your indulgence for one more little prayer. If we could pray a Hail Mary together for my mom on her 85th birthday today. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And she'll appreciate that even more than the roses and chocolates. We have, each of us, a particular worldview. We've been formed in it since we, as little children, began to absorb the reality of the universe around us. It is hardwired into us to know. In fact, Aristotle came to the conclusion that the human soul must be immortal because its desire to know could never be satisfied by just one life here. Not bad for a pagan. He also concluded that the purpose of human life is the contemplation of the one God. Not bad at all. But all of us look around, we see the universe, we've lived in it all of our lives, and we have particular perspectives based on how we've been formed. And we recognize that from the very beginning, formation is happening whether we approach it intentionally or not. We are constantly being formed. And of course, that has just begun to skyrocket in our time when we are so being incessantly barraged by data. Data that is constantly forming us, how we look at things, etc. And one of the challenges that we have is to become consciously aware enough of the fact of this ongoing formation so that we can make intelligent decisions about what we let touch our minds and our hearts. Because the danger is we've absorbed a whole lot of things just kind of automatically. And they may have a very substantive effect on how we live, how we look at human beings, how we look at creation, how we look at Jesus. And a lot of that has to do with families we've come out of, experiences we've had. And part of our task is to look at what we've experienced up to this point, how it's touched, how we see the world, and then stop and say, okay, but what is Jesus' perspective? The danger of this kind of being formed by a lot of different things was really well addressed by uh, Father Michael Keating in the talk that he gave. If you haven't had a chance to hear his talk, it's available on our site. He did a wonderful talk. You know, Part of what they taught us in the seminary, that good pastoral technique is knowing who's really good stuff to steal. So I'm going to quote from Father Michael Keating. He quoted Frank Sheed. See, he knew who to steal from, too. It was a good thing. 
Frank Sheed said, Most of us have Catholic wills, but not many of us have Catholic intellects. When we look at the universe, we see pretty well what other people see, plus certain extra features taught us by our religion. For the most part, the same influences that form other people's minds form ours. The same habits of thought, inclinations, bodily sense, worked upon by the same newspapers, periodicals, bestsellers, films, radio programs, so that we have not so much Catholic minds as worldly minds with Catholic patches. Intellectually, we wear our Catholicism like a badge on a lapel of the same kind of suit that everyone else is wearing. Brother Mike pointed out that Frank Sheed said this 50 years ago, and then he added, though, that it is often the case that serious-minded Catholics have Catholic wills, that is, we are trying to do the right thing, and we've got pieces of the world that are very Catholic, but in terms of an overall integrated way of seeing the world, we often have not found a way into a genuinely Catholic mind. There is this amorphous worldview out there that we have been formed in. Our Catholicism is hopefully part of that, but how much? Give an example of how a difference in worldview can have a massive impact. If you've seen the movie The Hiding Place, Betsy and Corey Tenboom were jailed in Ravensbrück death camp because they were caught. They were hiding Jews, but they weren't caught hiding the Jews. They were ultimately convicted of ration card error because they had all these extra ration cards to feed the Jews that they were hiding. Well, there's a point at which Betsy is in Ravensbrück. Now, it's hard to imagine kind of too many places in the history of the world that have been a better imitation of hell than the Nazi death camps. You're in this place. People around you are being tortured to death. It is a horrendous place. And there's a great scene in the movie, The Hiding Place, where Betsy is standing out in the yard. She's surrounded by some of the other prisoners, prisoners who happen to be there for criminal offenses. And Betsy looks up at the sky and she says, Oh, the sky is so blue. And this lady looks at her like, Are you out of your mind? You're in a death camp. Hello? The sky is blue? But to Betsy, to be walking hand in hand with the King of Kings, utterly transcended that circumstance she found herself in because she saw things his way. She knew she could die in the death camp, and in fact, she does. But what mattered to her was that she saw things with the King's eyes, consciously aware of the King's presence. It's a wonderful invitation to all of us to think of no matter how bad the circumstance in our life could possibly be, if you can find Jesus and be at peace in a situation like that, it shows something about the transcendent capacity of the King of Kings we love. Another example. I was going between two appointments, and I hadn't set either one, so I was kind of the victim of the scheduling, and so, of course, I'm running late. And I'm driving on 696, and I'm late, and I'm in the left lane, and there's a guy in front of me driving 65 miles an hour in the 70-mile lane in an 80-mile-an-hour traffic flow, and he's completely oblivious to the fact that he's only going 65 miles an hour because he's so busy chatting on the phone. And I wish at that point I'd had one of those big signs that you wave that says, shut up and drive, you know. (laughs) And so I'm watching this guy and I'm getting more and more irritated. You know, you really can kind of see the rationale behind road rage. (laughs) 
And so I decide I'm going to pull around him. And right at this point, two other cars come up and are next to me. And they both are going at 65 miles an hour. And they're both on the phone. And so I'm like completely boxed by these people that are just carrying on their own conversations. And I'm thinking, when are these morons going to learn how to drive? What a bunch of jerks get off the road. You're interfering with my life. And I'm getting more and more frustrated, etc., etc. You know. And eventually, at some point... I think maybe I should pray. (laughs) Regrettably, it was not my first impulse. (laughs) And so I just kind of asked Jesus for prayer. Help me. (laughs) And immediately, in this gentle, still voice, I'm looking at the person ahead of me. Jesus says, I died for him. says about the person next to me, I died for her. I died for him. I died for him, I died for him, I died for her, I died for him. Worldview. Do we see people the way Jesus does? Do we see everybody as infinitely precious to the King of Kings who died for them? Third example was a wonderful example from the movie There Be Dragons. There's a scene in the movie where Jose Maria Escriva and a group of his friends are escaping Madrid because they're murdering priests in the street. And just before they escape, this priest friend of theirs who is close part of their fellowship is beaten and shot to death right in front of them. And then they escape. And they're in this room and they're talking about that. And the friends of Jose Maria Escriva are just raging, just full of anger. How dare they do that? What did he ever do to them? And it's really clear what they want to do. And Jose Maria points out to them, with what you're feeling right now toward them, exactly how are you different from what they did? Because what we're called to do is love. Not because the person is lovable, not because they're doing the right thing, but because it's what the king has called us to do. Our natural tendency is not toward the kingdom. We call this concupiscence. It's that which draws us to that which is not good for us. Either things that are good but not good at this time or good in this way or simply things that are bad. It's a consequence of the fall that our emotions are disordered. We're drawn more to these other things. The direction we must choose instead is an intentional choice to move toward the kingdom. To adopt a worldview that is consistent with and formed by and thoroughly immersed in the Catholic worldview. The process of doing that is what we call conversion. Blessed John Paul the Great defines conversion as accepting by a personal choice the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. That's the key to what constitutes the Catholic worldview. It begins with him. It's perfectly summarized, the Catholic worldview, in the first sentence of John Paul the Great's first encyclical, Redeemer of Mankind. You know, when you write an encyclical and you're a brand new pope, you figure most people are probably going to read your first encyclical because they want to know who you are, where you're coming from, etc. Even non-Catholics and a variety of different folks would want to read that first one. But they may not get very far in it. So you put the most important sentence in the very first sentence, the very first thing you say, so if that's all they read in the whole encyclical, they at least get the most fundamental message, which is, the Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. No apologies there. 
Jesus is the center. He's the center of the universe. He's the center of history. To say that he's the center of the universe means that to fully understand the Catholic worldview, we have to start with creation itself. It doesn't say simply that he's the center of spirituality, that he's the center of redemption. To say the center of the universe means that the whole package is focused and centered on him. The Catechism says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Holy Scripture begins with these solemn words. The profession of faith takes them up when it confesses that God the Father Almighty is creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. The Catechism describes creation as the foundation of all God's saving plans. Usually when we think about salvation and redemption, we tend to associate it immediately more with the life of Jesus himself, like it begins with the Incarnation. But to say that creation itself is the foundation, it is the beginning of the history of salvation that culminates in Christ. The mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation and reveals the end for which in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. From the beginning, God envisioned the glory of a new creation in Christ. From the moment God said, let there be light, The key and often repeated to scripture in Genesis as creation unfolds is, and he saw that it was good. It's crucial to recognize that because that is not a fundamental component of all the possible worldviews. One of the things that the church has fought from the beginning is a heresy of Gnosticism and Manichaeism, which basically say creation is evil. There's a divine spark stuck in you, but everything material, everything physical, everything created is evil. The church has fought against that from the very beginning because it contradicts the very first things that describe God looking at the creation he had done and saying it was good, which he says repeatedly until it comes to human beings. And then it's not simply good. It's very good. His gift, creation itself, very good. Because he who is goodness itself brings it into being. The Catechism points out that Catechesis on Creation is of major importance because it concerns the very foundations of human and Christian life, for it makes explicit the response of the Christian faith to the basic question that men of all times have asked themselves, where do we come from and where are we going? Why am I here? Your worldview will give you the answer to that. If you believe we're just accidents going from nowhere to nowhere, how you live your life, how you treat other people, how you see purpose and meaning and fulfillment will be radically different than if you see yourself as loved into being by a Savior who is love incarnate, who loved the universe into being and whose love holds you in being and offers to share with you his love for you and for all those around you and for the very universe itself. Worldview makes a huge difference. Where does everything that exists come from and where is it going? These two questions, the first about the origin and the second about the end, are inseparable. They are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. That's a wonderful description of a worldview. It's about the meaning and orientation of our life. What is the meaning and orientation of our life? How do we see ourselves? 
Do we understand that when we were created at the moment of our creation, God looked at us and said it was very good? Do we understand that each one of us exists only because at the moment of our conception, the triune God created a unique human soul, a unique immortal human soul? Obviously, there was assistance from our parents. That's why we call it co-creation, which is really an amazing thing. Procreation. You create with God himself in the creation of a new human life. Animals reproduce. Human beings procreate. That fundamental distinction is built into the heart of the Catholic worldview and completely absent from those who just simply look at us as one of the many species on the planet. Then they miss the point. Scripture and tradition never cease to teach and celebrate this fundamental truth, the world was made for the glory of God. St. Bonaventure explains that God created all things not to increase his glory, but to show it forth and communicate it. For God has no other reason for creating than his love and his goodness. Or as Thomas Aquinas beautifully put, creatures came into existence when the key of love opened his hand. The glory of God consists in the realization of this manifestation and communication of his goodness for which the world was created. God made us to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. For the glory of God is man fully alive. Moreover, man's life is the vision of God. The Catechism describes this relationship between creation and redemption. If God's revelation through creation had already obtained life for all the beings that dwell on earth, how much more will the Word's manifestation of the Father obtain life for those who see God? The ultimate purpose of creation is that God, who is the creator of all things, may at last become all in all, thus simultaneously assuring his own glory and our own beatitude. We were created with a purpose. Our purpose will far exceed the life expectancy of this universe. We were created in love, out of love, to live forever. And to see ourselves simply as limited to here and now is to deny us of the fundamental destiny, which is our amazing gift. We believe that God created the world according to his wisdom. It is not the product of any necessity, which is another way of saying God didn't create us because he needed us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was kind of bummed out that the 10,000 times 10,000 angels was just not enough to kind of give him the kudos that he deserved. In point of fact, it's been a position of the church from the beginning that the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is more than sufficient for each other. They don't need anyone else to love them, to worship them, and to adore them. They did not create out of necessity. They did not create out of need. They created simply out of a desire to share their goodness. Nor was creation happen as a result of blind fate or chance. The idea that the universe just kind of willed itself into existence and randomly exists, etc., is clearly not consistent with how we understand the fact of creation. Now, it's important in saying that to recognize that this does not tie the church 
to a particular paleontology or a particular cosmology or a particular understanding of biologic evolution or anything else. The church is making fundamental statement about the very nature of creation itself, not necessarily the mechanisms involved in how things come to be. In fact, John Paul the Great wrote extensively on that, so did Benedict XVI, because this has been an ongoing debate for a long time. And in a world in which science has become a god, we need to be careful that we don't impose a particular perspective on the scriptures that is not what the scriptures are trying to say. The bottom line is that creation happens, that God does it, that every unique human soul is directly created by him. You know, what kind of mechanisms he used in the beginning, we don't know. We don't need to know. But what we do need to know is that it was his action. He is the one that brings us and the universe into being. The most that science can say is that there is a point beyond which we have no information. And a good scientist will have the humility to simply say, we can't go past that point, we don't know. But, well, of course, we're convinced that if God had nothing to do with it, then the proper response is, well, if you don't know, then how do you know that God had nothing to do with it? How do you know who didn't do whatever happened? But if your desire is to create a worldview in which human beings are the center, the only way you can effectively doing that is by eliminating God. So any point in which God is part of the worldview needs to be assaulted, which, of course, happens kind of consistently. We believe that creation proceeds from God's free will. He wanted to make his creatures share in his being, his wisdom, and his goodness. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The universe, created in and by the eternal word, the image of the invisible God, is destined for and addressed to man, himself created in the image of God and called to a personal relationship with God. It's for us. There have been many astronomers and cosmologists who attempt to point out the statistical unlikelihood of God himself wanting anything to do with this one minor planet in this backwater solar system, in this mediocre galaxy, in this out-of-the-way corner of the universe. Well, so what? To simply reduce the magnitude of what God has done to what one of them referred to as simply, it's that pale blue dot, Earth, just some pale blue dot upon which we happen to be. But the vision of the church wonderfully expressed by John Paul the Great, is that the universe itself was created to be a nuptial gift for Adam and Eve. A nuptial gift. He created the first couple and gave them this wondrous universe, a universe so amazingly beautiful that it took thousands and thousands of years before we could build some of the telescopes and microscopes necessary just to even continue to unpack its absolute amazing beauty. Our worldview is that he did it for us. And what it's based on is he said so. He who does not lie and does not deceive has made us the centerpiece and the heart of his creation. That's looked at as species arrogance in some quarters. But when the second person of the Most Holy Trinity becomes a porpoise, then we'll have a problem. In the meantime... It was the Word who became flesh, became one of us. Creation is exists, creation is good, creation is the beginning of salvation history. 
It is created through the Lord Jesus himself out of love. From the beginning, it was all about love, a love relationship between us and God. It's one of the fundamental points that Genesis makes to us. That from the very beginning, as soon as Adam and Eve existed, they were in relationship with the one who joined them to walk in the garden in the coolness of the day. It's all about relationship. We were never apart from God. And the idea that he has for us is to grow in that relationship, to deepen that relationship, to open our hearts to that relationship, to recognize that it is his plan, it has been his plan from the very beginning. The Redeemer of mankind, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. Well, what of history? History begins in Genesis. And in Genesis, we have the proto-gospel, the first proclamation, that one would come who would eventually crush the head of the serpent. That from the very beginning, even as the despair of the fall is descending on Adam and Eve, when they begin to recognize the magnitude of how badly they blew it, Even in the midst of that, they're given a promise to enkindle in their hearts hope that one will come. One will come to set them free. One will come to restore the damage, the king of kings himself. We see from that point on this gift, the gift of the old covenant. The principal purpose to which the plan of the old covenant was directed was to prepare for the coming of Christ. This is in the Constitution on Divine Revelation the Redeemer of all, and the Messianic Kingdom, to announce His coming by prophecy and to indicate its meaning through various types. From the very beginning, He was present. He was being proclaimed. He was preparing a people for Himself. Christ is the light of humanity, and it is accordingly the heartfelt desire of the Sacred Council, being gathered together in the Holy Spirit, that by proclaiming His gospel to every creature, it may bring to all men the light of Christ which shines out visibly from the church. The purpose of history, like the purpose of creation, is to lead all to that perfect fulfillment in God for which they were created. The prophetic purpose announced in the Old Testament has its fulfillment in the central point of history, the Incarnation itself. When Mary says yes, the universe changes. When the triune God descends upon her, and the King of Kings is incarnate in her womb, everything changes. The universe changes. Humanity changes. The incarnation itself, this central point that all history had been aiming toward, the high point, the most crucial event in the history of our universe, is the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. The moment of his death, the moment of his resurrection, we were restored. Even though... At that point, many people had no idea. The bottom line was, it's now different. The gates of heaven are now open. He who was predicted to come and crush the serpent's head has now reestablished that relationship which we turned our backs on in Genesis. Has now reestablished it perfectly by what he did for us. His saving death, his glorious resurrection. He has now done what we could never have done. He has now restored what we could never restore. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us beyond reason. Because he loves us beyond words. The heart, the center of the Catholic worldview, is the cross and resurrection. This Catholic worldview embraces all humanity because all are called to embrace the true light who enlightens all men. 
All are called to share in the fullness of his body on earth. As the Constitution and the Liturgy points out, the whole of mankind is called into the household of the Church, which has as her heart the sacred liturgy, which the Council Fathers describe as the primary and indispensable source from which the faithful are to derive the true Christian spirit. The Catechism goes on to point out, by choosing the starting point that Jesus is light of the nations, the Council demonstrates that the article of faith about the Church depends entirely on the articles concerning Christ Jesus. The Church has no other light than Christ's. According to a favorite image of the Church Fathers, the Church is like the moon, all its light reflected from the sun. Lumen Gentium, the Constitution on the Church, describes in more detail this Catholic worldview with respect to Jesus. The head of the body is Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, and in him all things come into being. He is before all creatures, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, which is the Church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. By the greatness of his power, he rules the things in heaven and the things on earth. And with his all-surpassing perfection and way of acting, he fills the whole body with the riches of his glory. That's what he's promised to do. That's what he does. But, like in the garden, and like for us every day, it always gets back to that choice, that definition of conversion that John Paul uses. It's about a choice, a personal acceptance of Jesus Christ and his sovereignty, and not a choice that we simply make once upon a time. It's about a choice that permeates our day every day, that we choose to accept his sovereignty in our life. We choose to be his disciple. What does that mean? It means to be one who is taught. And what are we being taught? This worldview of how to see things his way, not our way, not society's way, certainly not the world, the flesh, and the devil's way but to see things his way, that his love may mold us and make us. As the Constitution on the Church goes on to say, all the members ought to be molded in the likeness of him until Christ be formed in them. And notice, it's talking about a process. We should be molded in him until Christ is formed in us. It's a process that begins with our baptism. It is amazingly enhanced by the reception of First Confession, First Communion. It is empowered by the reception of Confirmation. But it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop until he is formed in us. For this reason, we who have been made to conform with him, who have died with him and risen with him, are taken up into the mysteries of his life until we will reign together with him. On earth, we're pilgrims in a strange land, tracing in trial and in oppression the path he trod. We are made one with him in his sufferings, like the body is one with the head, suffering with him that with him we may be glorified, taking up our cross, taking up his cross, suffering with him, making up in our own flesh what is missing in the suffering of Christ, which is certainly one of the most mysterious verses in the entire New Testament. But there is some way in which when we offer our suffering, when we open our hearts to the King of Kings and we offer him our suffering, there is some mysterious way in which this builds the kingdom in a way we don't understand. But, you know, the bottom line is we don't really understand much of anything. And we would like to think we understand a whole lot more than we do. But even when it comes to just natural human life, 
Now, when you throw a switch to turn on a light, you really have actually no idea why it works. I mean, you might be able to answer some kind of primitive questions about electronics, but do you have any idea why an electron flow causes a photon discharge? Who knows? Who cares? The light comes on. If we limit our life to what we thoroughly and completely understand, we would never get out of bed in the morning. See, that's the scientism heresy, is that unless you can nail it down perfectly, exactly, explicitly, and empirically, it can't be true, it can't exist. And that's the attack that's made against our belief in the sacraments, against our belief in the supernatural. The scientist does not like to say This is not knowable because it transcends human reality. Because part of the deal that we've been operating under from Descartes is the definition that there is no reality outside of what humans can experience. That has swept through and destroyed most of Western philosophy. Kant and Descartes and their compatriots saying it's a waste of time to talk about the immortality of the soul or the presence of God or redemption. You can't talk about any of that because you can't prove any of it, so it's a waste of time. Thereby adopting a worldview that is so catastrophically limited that it eliminates them from really embracing the destiny that they were created to walk in. It is a very clever trick that the devil has managed to convince so many people that unless you can put it under a microscope, it doesn't exist. But I hear that all the time. We are strangers in a strange land. What are we called to do then? We've been given this gift. The transmission of the Christian faith consists primarily in proclaiming Jesus Christ. Why? In order to lead others to faith in him. The heart of our worldview is that it's not my package just for me. The point is, it's a gift a gift intended to be shared, a gift to fill other people's lives with that they too can come to know the King of Kings out of love. Every one of us here tonight is probably here because on some level somebody else loved us enough to introduce us to Jesus, whether it was parent, friend, whoever. Some of us know exactly who took us skeptical little twits and introduced us to the King of Kings. Some of you are blessed with having Christian parents who did that. Hoorah! But the bottom line is, the gift that we've been given is a gift that our worldview says, share it. The worldview is by definition universal. When I am raised up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself, all men and women to myself. Everyone is given the invitation. Everyone is loved into being by the King of Kings. Everyone is meant to say yes. And our responsibility is to live in such a way as to let that happen because they look at our lives and they say, wow, this seems to work. Maybe I should try it. From the very beginning, the first disciples burned with the desire to proclaim Christ. What did they say? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they invite people of every era to enter into the joy of their communion with Christ. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. If we have nothing to say, maybe we need to see and hear more. Paragraph 425 of the Catechism points out how personal it is meant to be for us. 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. That's, of course, from the first letter of John, chapter 1. But lest we hear this and think, wouldn't it have been nice to be back then and being able to actually see and touch and be with Jesus so we could say that, and then thinking that we missed out because we happened to be born two millennia later, so we can never have as concrete an experience of Jesus as the apostles did. We simply have to look into the life of the apostle Paul, who never met Jesus in the flesh, and whose relationship with Jesus was every bit as real, specific, and concrete as Peter or any of the other apostles were. Because Jesus himself chose to make himself supernaturally present to him in a way that was concrete and real and changed his life. The Catholic worldview is that that's meant for everyone. The Catholic heresy is that, nah, that's just for like the superstars. And that's been a heresy that the church has been fighting against from the beginning. And Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, makes it perfectly clear that every baptized person is called to the fullness of life with Jesus. In other words, there is no lifestyle, there's no particular vocation, there's nothing that we can experience that calls us to less of a relationship with Jesus than we read about in the scriptures that we see being real and concrete and demonstrated in their life. And we have two millennia of saints pointing out this to us. The fathers of the Vatican Council and the dogmatic constitution recognized that one of the issues that they really wanted to address was this idea that the fullness of life, communion with Jesus, holiness of life, that somehow this was for like the higher tier of Catholics, professionally religious, clergy, hermits, holy saints, whatever. And that the hoi polloi, you know, the people who were like just kind of on the second tier, we should basically just kind of hope to avoid purgatory, but that's really all we could kind of expect because really we're not in the upper tier. And our catechesis, etc., until the council in some way significantly expressed that. For example, the classic picture in the Baltimore Catechism, picture of husband and wife and kids, caption reads, good. Picture of sister in full habit, caption reads, better. Picture of priest. What do you think the caption reads? Yeah. And why? Because in some unusual way, the perception was that you're kind of going up the ladder, and when you get to that side, you got the best chance to have the best relationship with Jesus, so you better take advantage of that. And what did the council fathers say? It's not about ordination. It's about baptism. Are you baptized? One person cannot be more baptized than another person. If you are baptized, the fullness of life is meant for you. The fullness of the charismatic life, the fullness of the contemplative life, the fullness of the Eucharistic life, it's meant for you. Because the intent is that all of us be able to say, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, 
The word of life is what we express to you. The point is, it's meant for all of us to experience. It's meant for all of us to walk in. This was John Paul the Great's great call to us as we approached the millennium. In his two millennial letters, one of the things that he said is the reason why the parishes need to become schools of prayer is because of the challenges that face us as the new millennium approaches. If we don't become more concretely in touch with the person of Jesus himself so that all of our people can say, yes, he lives in me. Yes, I walk in him. Yes, he's not dead. I just talked to him this morning. Yes, the reality of the King of Kings is real. Then the assaults that are only getting worse and worse, we will be defenseless against. It's not enough for me to stand up and say, Teresa of Jesus had a great relationship with Jesus. Well, that's good for her and all the Carmelites. <laughs> but what about me? What about me? Teresa of Jesus, when she was asked why more people didn't have the kind of relationship with Jesus that she did, simply responds, because more people don't want it. More people are not willing to simply say, okay, here's what my worldview says. Jesus first. Jesus non-negotiably first in my life. My appointment with Jesus every day will be more important than anything else in my life because it is an appointment with the most important person in the universe. If we truly put him first, the way the Council Fathers invite us to, if we open ourselves up, if we start seeing everything as the way he sees it, then we will begin to walk in that. It says in the Acts of the Apostles, it was at Antioch they were called Christians for the first time. We didn't call ourselves this. We didn't know what to call ourselves. We thought we were still Jews. So we said, well, we'll call it the way because we stink, we're still Jews. And it wasn't until after the fall of Jerusalem where we finally got formally and officially expelled from the synagogues. At the same time, Old Testament Judaism stopped and rabbinic Judaism, in a sense, begins with a whole new kind of approach because the temple had been destroyed and was not going to get restored. That was the same time at which they kind of say goodbye to the Christians. And so we're at Antioch. And why did they call us Christians? Because it's all we talk about. All they'd ever hear these Christians say, you know, it's like, you ever been next to somebody who just got engaged and you're so tired of all you ever hear? Oh, oh, and she's, oh, and she's, oh, and oh, and oh. And, you know. Well, that's a good thing, you know, I'm told. <laughs> but it says, when you're just radically, drastically in love with somebody, they're all you want to talk about. They're all you want to think about. The difficulty is that like for lots of Christians, we have that kind of relationship with Jesus in the beginning. It's called the honeymoon phase. And then we kind of go on from there. And what does the scripture say? This I have against you. You lost your first love. Is Jesus ever supposed to be less in our life than he was in the beginning? No. Because our worldview is he's the absolute non-negotiable center. He wants more. He wants to be so real, so concrete, so present to us that we can echo anything that was said in the New Testament about him and about relationship with him. We can say, my sheep hear my voice, I know because I'm one of them and I do. We can say we have seen him with our own eyes. That's the invitation that each of us have. That's the fullness of life of the Catholic worldview, to take this gift At the heart of catechesis, we find a person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the only son from the Father, 
To catechize is to reveal in the person of Christ the whole of God's eternal design, reaching perfect fulfillment in that person. Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. That's the point. It's never simply about, here's the data. It's about being in communion. What does it mean to be in communion? It means you are in a heart-to-heart relationship with one you love, who loves you, and you both know it. That's what it means to be in communion. That's the invitation. That's the heart of the catechesis. And, obviously, it's something that the entire church is currently in desperate need of, or we wouldn't be doing all this talking about the new evangelization. The new evangelization that is first and foremost directed at Roman Catholic parishes who, for whatever reason, are not so evangelizing of their people. We are meant to be brought into communion. Well, the focus that we've been talking about has to do primarily with certain spiritual dimensions of the Catholic worldview, but we need to understand that when we talk about God as the author of creation, The church has a much more explicit understanding that it's not simply about those things that are technically properly spiritual. It's about our whole life. God's plan for the world is that men should work together to renew and constantly perfect the temporal order. The decree on the apostolate of the laity, which has had singular significance for almost everybody here, says, all those things which make up the temporal order, namely, the good things of life, the prosperity of the family, culture, economic matters, the arts, the professions, the laws of the political community, international relations, and other matters of this kind, as well as their development and progress, not only aid in the attainment of man's ultimate goal, but also possess their own intrinsic value. This value has been established in them by God, whether they are considered in themselves or as part of the whole temporal order. God saw that all he had made was very good. This natural goodness of theirs takes on a special dignity as a result of their relation to the human person, for whose service they were created. It has pleased God to unite all things, both natural and supernatural, in Christ Jesus, so that in all things he may have the first place. In the Senator Bishop's statement on justice in the world, the bishops taught, Action on behalf of justice and participation in the transformation of the world fully appear to us as a constitutive dimension of the preaching of the gospel, or in other words, of the church's mission for the redemption of the human race and its liberation. It is not a Catholic perspective that there are religious things and there are secular things and God is only concerned about the religious things. It's the church's perspective that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That every dimension of legitimate human society is meant to be something that's brought into and filled with the presence of the kingdom by the king of kings himself as his people respond to his invitation to share their lives more completely with him. There is nothing that is meant to be outside. All of those things, when they make the point of listing Economics, arts, the professions, etc., 
all of these things that make up the temporal order. God's plan for the world is that men should work together to renew and constantly perfect the temporal order. How do you do that? By walking into every situation in your life with the King of Kings himself present to you because you are in union with him, because you are in love with him. You walk into every situation and wherever you are, that's where the kingdom is. You know, when Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ, it's a wonderful image because in current law, but especially in ancient law, the ambassador was treated as if the king was now present. And wherever the ambassador was had extraterritoriality. It was like his country followed him around. Wherever he was, that was his land. He was representing the king. Well, in a more wonderful way, that's actually a shadow of what life is like for us because everywhere we are, the king is present. Everywhere we are, the kingdom is present. And we need not be even remotely hesitant or embarrassed or shy about letting other people know that they have a destiny that far exceeds what they're aware of. And it means that in everything that we do, we have a responsibility to be simply open so that when the king wants to do something through us, wherever we are, we're so in touch with him because we're spending the time with him we need, because we're reading his book, because he opens our hearts more and more to him, so that we can be present wherever he wants us to be and we can do whatever it is he wants us to do. If you want to see a good example of how a systematic worldview is really played out, look at the Muslims. Muslims aren't shy about going into villages in Britain, getting the numbers enough, declaring Sharia, and now living a Muslim life. They're not even remotely shy about whether or not they're going to impose their worldview because they simply think it's true, it's correct. Therefore, they're going to impose it because why wouldn't they? We have the worldview handed to us by the triune God, and we act as if we're embarrassed about it, as if we need to hide our light. We've been so bamboozled into being politically correct that we allow virtually nothing of who we are as followers of Jesus to transform the temporal order. Well, the order is going to get transformed. It's either going to be by us or it's going to be by somebody else. And if it's not transformed by us because we have been sitting on what the King of Kings wants to do in our life, then it's time that we open up and say, Jesus, it's your world The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I want to live my life in such a way as to say, yes, you be present. I want to be your ambassador. I want every situation I walk into to be, you are now present there. You can let your transforming power move through me in the power of your spirit. You can touch every situation we find ourselves in. And when we do that, he moves because he wants to. To be shy about being in love with the king. Well, he has some strong words to say about, you're ashamed of me before men. I'll be ashamed of you before my angels and my father. It's not the place we want to be. We want to be simply lovers of the king, lovers of every human being. That transcends all other considerations. That I died for him, I died for him, I died for her, I died for him, is simply true. We need to start living in a way that says, every human being you run into, do you recognize that they're infinitely precious to the Trinity? You also recognize that maybe you're running into them because you might be the last chance they have to hear the word of life. That was Father Ed Freedy with the opening talk from Christ the King Church's 2012 parish mission, Seeing Things Jesus' Way, Turning the World Right Side Up. 
The title of the mission was, Lord, that we might see the glory and majesty of the Church and our call to form in ourselves a Catholic worldview. We'll have the question and answer session that followed Father Freedy's talk right after these messages. Stay with us. This is Putting on the Mind of Christ on Ave Maria Radio. Putting on the Mind of Christ is a compilation of presentations, talks, and news recorded over the past couple of decades. References to people, facts, and opinions heard were made at the time of the recording. Welcome back to Putting on the Mind of Christ. After his talk, Father Freedy took questions from some of the attendees until it was time for the closing benediction. Any questions? If there are any questions, you can come to the mic right there. Father, you mentioned the uh, old example of uh, pictures of the laity and the sisters and then the priest and uh, how we're laity and we can still be holy. But could you comment on the paradox that even though we're not part of a religious order or we're not ordained, still we, we need to emulate them in some ways to be all that the Lord wants us to be as far as prayer goes, and being separate from the world a bit, uh, having different priorities? Well, you know, the irony is that we look at it that way, but it's really kind of upside down. You know, it's not like religious and priests are the ones who pray, and to be a good layperson, we need to learn to how to imitate them. In the decree on the apostle of the laity, when it defines the laity, it simply says, the laity are the Christian faithful. And then there's priests and religious. It's an amazing way the decree and the apostle of the laity talks about it. It's to say the heart is actually the laity. There were 120 people in the upper room on Pentecost. That means there were, you know, a majority of laity, like all of them except 12. And they all got the spirit. And they all set the world on fire because they walked out of that upper room seeing things with Jesus' eyes, filled with his spirit. I don't have more of the Holy Spirit because I'm ordained than you do because you're baptized. I have particular gifts that are to serve the people of God that I've been empowered to do, just like the sisters have a particular vocation to image the kingdom of God in a particular way. But if you're baptized and confirmed, you have the entire package for what you need to be able to live that way. And when the scripture asks us to pray, when the scripture invites us to have a deeper relationship with Jesus, it never says, well, here's what the priests and the religious, what the clergy should do, and it's not a bad idea for lay people to try that too, because it's simply addressed to the faithful. The idea that it's just for a certain set is exactly what Lumen Gentium is trying to dislodge from the kind of the commonly received Catholic mindset. And what people like I mentioned, Jose Maria Escriva, it's kind of the point of Opus Dei. Men and women living in the world, utterly transforming the world because they're simply being faithful. You know, our practical experience here is the Catholic Charismatic Renewal fundamentally a clerical movement, or did we get priests involved in it, kicking and screaming, and never as many as we'd like? And did that Catholic Charismatic Renewal utterly transform the face of the Church? So there's a hundred million Catholic Charismatics today because of what an almost exclusively lay movement did? I think our own life experience around here should be able to say, you know, I think lay people may have some gifts. (laughs) In fact, what Lumen Gentium pointed out is that everyone has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, which, of course, is just lifted from the Scripture. 
But that's one of those things where the church still needs to read its own documents and kind of catch up. Did you know one of the fundamental responsibilities of the parish priest is to discern, nurture, and support the charisms in his people? Why? Because it's his people that are going to change the world. As we try to get down to the uh, nitty-gritty of explaining our worldview on issues that are very explosive and are challenged on issues like what is a marriage, is it a cop-out to say first and maybe mainly that Jesus has taught through his church that this is the truth for this issue? Or is that like sort of trying to blame the church for something? I mean, we are the church. That's what we believe. And fundamentally, that's why, you know, the church has been given the task of helping to understand what the truth is. So that's a good starting point, right? Or could you comment on that? Well, yeah, I think it depends on how it comes across. I mean, if what people hear you say is, well, well, here's what the church teaches, so we're kind of stuck with it. This is not going to be particularly coercive to their change of mind, you know. The good news is when we can simply explain, here's why the church teaches this, but to be able to simply say, when we say, okay, here's what the church teaches about a whole set of issues, and we know that the church teaches this, we know that what she's actually reflecting at this point is the voice of the one who said, he who hears you hears me. The voice of the one who said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The voice of the one who speaks through the bishops and the pope in a very particular and unique way, for which we don't need to be remotely embarrassed or shamed or even hesitant to proclaim. But it's also helpful for us if we understand, you know, what it is that the church teaches and why. You know, a lot of the church's teaching, like on marriage and family life, can be significantly strongly also defended by an appeal to the natural law. But that means we need to kind of have it together enough to be able to express some of that. Because especially when it comes to abortion, to go into a situation where there's lots of people of a variety of different backgrounds and to simply say abortion's wrong because the scripture of the church says so, the immediate response people are going to make is, well, that's fine for you, but that's not the scripture or the tradition that I hold is valid. Can we go into a situation and explain, based on reason, why it's an absolute certainty that the unborn child is a human being? Because that's the kind of thing we're going to need to be able to do, especially in terms of what's affecting our society at the moment. But when you're talking with somebody, you remember, no matter what the point of the conversation is, the bottom line is always, you have to ask yourself and be thinking, does this person know Jesus? Because if they don't, it doesn't matter whatever other arguments you might win, the bottom line is you always want to be open to the possibility that Jesus brought about this particular conversation so that this person can come to know him better. And so to have the courage to kind of do that, to say that, so that they end up calling us Christians, because it's all we ever talk about, because it's the one we're in love with. Because the bottom line is things don't change until people get converted. And people don't get converted until they hear the gospel, which means we who know him need to let people know who he is. Lots of us have friends who know and love Jesus and aren't Catholic. How does our worldview as Catholics, is there a difference between our Catholic worldview and a Christian worldview, and how do we go about working with that? Well, that was a question that was kind of raised early on when we decided to describe this as a Catholic worldview. Here's part of the problem. There are 32,000 different Protestant denominations. If you tried to create a consistent worldview among those denominations, you'd get nowhere at high speed because there are such 
radically different approaches to such fundamental issues. For example, how do you look at the human person? Is the human person snow-covered dung? Is the human person totally depraved? Is the human person essentially good, made in the image and likeness of God? Can you create a worldview that embraces simultaneously those three perspectives about something as very basic as how do you look at the human person themselves? No. If you want to see the difficulty of putting together a joint Christian worldview, read the discussions between Henry VIII and Luther and Calvin. Very interesting dialogues. To say that they weren't exactly on the same page about a whole set of issues would be something of an understatement. But when it comes to worldview, because worldview also includes how do we choose to live in the world, which means what are the moral choices we make? The majority of the denominations are now formally pro-abort, are now formally ordaining homosexual, active homosexual ministers, active homosexual bishops, etc. Is that compatible with the Catholic worldview understanding of the nature of marriage and family life? If the majority of the denominations are pro-abort, we're already so distinct and so many fundamental issues. See, because of our experiences around here, when we think of Christians, we tend to think more of evangelical fundamentalist kinds of Christians, or Christians who really share our worldview. But if you read what the mainline denominations are teaching and changing, for example, this whole thing about contraception in a certain sense is kind of laughable because you have people saying it's a Catholic issue. Every single Protestant denomination was radically anti-contraceptive until like the 1930s. In fact, some of the best defenses you can see of the church's position on contraception were penned by Protestant ministers who were echoing what Paul VI would eventually say, that if contraception is adopted, unbridled promiscuity will destroy society. And that's what the Protestants were saying. And then one by one, they changed their perspective. Like one by one, they've changed their perspective on abortion. One by one, many of them are changing their perspective on, on active homosexuality. You couldn't put together a quote-unquote Christian worldview that embraced all that. What are you going to say about Jesus himself when one of the major denominations at their annual convention had to make a decision, should they ordain somebody to their priesthood, did he have to believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus, and did he have to believe in the divinity of Jesus, and they answered no to both. And this is not some minor group. This is one of the largest Christian denominations. You can be a priest in this denomination and deny the reality of the resurrection and deny the reality of the divinity of Jesus. How do you put together a worldview if our worldview is so non-negotiably centered on exactly who Jesus is and who the human person is? It'd be a very tricky thing. When we can come together and share what we can, we need to do that. And the interesting thing, of course, is sometimes you have these Senate hearings and it's the arch-fundamentalists and the Catholic bishops who are sitting at the same table, not necessarily really comfortably, but recognizing that they need to do what they can do. Anytime we can come together, we need to come together. Because, you know, to kind of borrow Ben Franklin's great line, if we don't hang together, we will surely hang separately. Which is why there are so many denominational leaders now kind of coming on board with the Catholics in terms of this whole challenge to freedom of religion. Because they recognize you beat the Catholics on this, you're going to beat the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Jews, everybody's going to go down. Now, we value and treasure our relationship with brothers and sisters of other traditions. At the same time, we need to recognize that it's our responsibility to constantly proclaim the fullness of truth, especially the fact of the Eucharistic Lord.
and to not be shy about that, to not be embarrassed about who we are and the fullness of life we've been given, but to remember that the Council makes it perfectly clear that men and women of other traditions who have given their life to Jesus, who are validly baptized, are absolutely to be considered as true brothers and sisters of the Catholic faithful, which is something that, unfortunately, both sides have not done a really good job remembering in our own history. So to work together, to love each other, to treat each other as brothers and sisters, but to not be hesitant or embarrassed about sharing the more. Here's why confirmation exists as a sacrament. Here's why we know the Eucharistic Lord is real. Here's the advantage of being able to receive an absolution for mortal sin. There are gifts we have that are ours to give, that we should be especially interested in giving to our brothers and sisters who also call in the name of Jesus. Father, you said earlier that we have the worldview and we act as if we are embarrassed by it. And you contrasted that with Muslims in Europe. And we live in the United States. It was built on freedom, which some may call moral pluralism. How do we live in this country as in a democracy with freedom but still stand up to our beliefs still, but not trample the rights of the beliefs of others in a country where we're free to do it what we will. Well, see, part of the issue is that it kind of speaks to the fact that American history is not being taught in our schools because if you actually read the founding documents of the colonies, they're not remotely shy about saying, here's why we're founded. And the bottom line concerning the fact that the entire criminal code adopted in the United States was essentially the imposition of the Judeo-Christian Ten Commandments. Every state had on its books laws that you can't be open on Sunday. You could never know that except for the fact that it had been revealed to Christians that that was the case. You could be fined for using the name of Jesus inappropriately in a public setting. This idea that all the Founding Fathers and all the original documents are deists and that we're trying to create a Christian reality that never really existed is simply not borne out by the historical reality of the criminal code that every state followed because it was Judeo-Christian code. The idea that you can't enforce morality, well, why do you think it's illegal to murder, to do all the things that the criminal code speaks of? Because it's the Ten Commandments. The idea that, well, somehow somebody just sat back and using, you know, natural law, philosophy, derived the criminal code is simply not historically accurate. So if you want to point out, well, here's what actually happened when the country was founded. And here's what we would actually like to get back to, the place where Christians are not embarrassed about the fact that, yeah, we have a moral code and we think it's a good moral code and we're perfectly happy to do what we can to see that it happens. Now, obviously, you need to do that with respect and gentleness and respect for the other person's dignity and yada, yada, yada. But to roll over and play dead because what we want to do is based on what we believe is purely contrary to how the country itself got founded and how we did live for most of our life. So you were quoting um, First John and you were talking about um, that which we have, we want to share and... Uh, Then you said the quote, this I have against you, that you lost your first love. Um, And then you were talking at the beginning about how your worldview is formed by your experiences and your parents and this and that. Well, say you're an adult and you're coming to have a Catholic worldview and to 
you know, for the first time know and love Jesus, well, okay, now what? Now what do I do? I can't be the only person here who feels that way. So, now what? (laughs) Well, you know, the good news, as actually a host of our saints in similar situations, like Augustine, like Francis of Assisi, like these folks that had another life, and then they met Jesus, and then what happened after that, you know? The good news is, at any point at which we choose to stop and say, Jesus, be the center of my life. I want you to reign in me. One of the glorious gifts that Jesus has given to his bride is to raise up a spectacular set of men and women who have put in print what does it mean and where do we want to go. You want to see what's possible, get the interior castles, read the last chapter on the seventh mansion. It's a good place to start because when you know what's going to happen, you know what's really possible, then you're willing to put up with all the other stuff to get there, you know. And there can be a significant learning curve, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is the saints have been wonderfully articulate about what's really possible. And what we need to do is when the snake tells us you don't deserve it, you're not worthy, just agree. Because that's where most Catholics come to a full stop. Oh, I'm not worthy. Oh, I can't do this. You're not worthy. That's the point. That's why we call it mercy. Next question. And that's perfectly demonstrated when every time I stand at that altar and we all say, Lord, I am not worthy. I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. I'm not worthy. That's the point. That's why we call it mercy. That's why we don't save ourselves. The Savior is out of his mind crazy in love with you. All he wants is have a chance to make that so much more real and concrete in your life and in all of our lives that we can go out of here and say, yeah, that which I have seen, which I have touched with my hands, that's his plan. Any attempts to dissuade us from that are just coming from the snake, and they should get all the consideration they deserve. You know, like Mel Gibson's great response, you know, how did Jesus respond to the snake? And we don't. We dialogue. Oh, yeah, I'm unworthy. Oh, yeah, I thought so. I'm not. Yeah, I'm, un- I'm unworthy. What else can you say? Oh, yeah, I'm unworthy, and I'm unloved, and I'm unloved. You know, the snake has a plan for our life. Despair, die, burn. Not the plan we should adopt. The king has come that we might have life and have it to the full. We need to listen to him. To follow up on one of Father Red's topics, evangelization, Toronto's new cardinal, Thomas Collins, talks with Vatican Radio's Emma McCarthy about the challenges to evangelization in an increasingly secular society which wants to marginalize faith in the public square. Archbishop Thomas Collins of Toronto was raised a cardinal in the last consistory. He tells Emer McCarthy that one of the main challenges he sees to his mission of evangelization is brought on by an increasingly secular society which wants to marginalize faith in the public square. The church has different situations in, around the world, but in the, the situation I face in Canada, and I think it may be similar to some degree in other parts, maybe Europe to some degree, and the United States, there is a kind of a form of secularism in which freedom of religion becomes freedom from religion. And a kind of a mindset which, in a sense, doesn't make much of a, you know, what kind of a contribution does it make to the broader society? Sort of wants to exclude the voice of religion, the voice of faith. Let it be excluded. Let it not speak in the public square. Let it stay back in the little home, shut the door, keep it away. Don't let it be appear in public. I don't think that's right. 
I think we believers, and I speak of Christians, I speak of Catholic Christians, I speak of also people of other faiths. People of faith contribute to society. If you are sick, if you are on the streets in Toronto, if you are suffering, the hand reaching out to help you will almost certainly be motivated by faith, by religious faith. And therefore, we participate in the society in a very profound way. That's not the only reason why we have a right to be heard, but it is one reason. And I think that we Christians and also believers of other faiths, I think that's uh, true as well, need to be part of the democratic conversation. And uh, we have every right to be present in that, and we need to do that. We should not accept the idea that our faith should be simply off in the side. It isn't a relevant issue. Our faith is a very relevant issue. And I think that uh, people of faith, whether it be, like I just met a group of the Jewish community just a short time ago, fervent uh, Jews, fervent Catholics, disagree obviously on profoundly important issues, but we love and respect one another. And I met a, a good friend of mine who was a, a new friend of mine. We were went off to a little coffee shop, and I was sitting there. There he had his uh, his keep on, his, and I was at my Roman collar. My thing. We're sitting having coffee and chatting away, and had a great great time together. And somebody came in who looked at us and said, "Oh, this is a real amazing. I see a Jewish and uh, you know Catholic uh, priest uh, talking together." And it, we both looked at one another. Don't know what they meant. You know. So I think that the people who are really seem to be nervous are the secularists. They don't like uh, these religious people, what are the, what's going on? And then they speak, of course, of how the religious people be fighting one another. That's certainly not true in uh, the situation I'm living in. It can be true, but then it's often caused by other factors, economic factors where religion becomes a marker of a group in society, and then people fight on that thing. That can happen. But I think that it's also very real that believers work together and certainly contribute enormously to any society. So secularism in the sense of exclusion of religion is, I think, a dead end. It contributes nothing, and therefore that's not it. Secularism in the sense of this age, for, like, as we used to say in Latin, for omnes secula, secularum, for all the ages of the ages, that's all secular means is of this age. And in this age, the voice of faith is alive, it's vibrant, it's contributing, it's life-giving, and therefore it uh, has every right to contribute to the whole of society. And a warm thanks there to Archbishop Thomas Collins, the new Cardinal of Toronto, Canada. On this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ, we heard the first talk from the 2012 Christ the King Parish Mission. The mission was titled, Lord, that we might see the glory and majesty of the Church and our call to form in ourselves a Catholic worldview. Father Red Freedy's talk title was, Seeing Things Jesus' Way, Turning the World Right Side Up. Next time, as we continue our coverage of the mission, we'll hear from Deacon Dan Foley. We also heard a short report from Vatican Radio's Ema MacArthur interviewing Toronto's new Cardinal Thomas Collins. He spoke about the difficulty of evangelizing in an increasingly secular society. We thank Vatican Radio for their contribution to our program. Our talks on putting on the mind of Christ are drawn from an extensive archive we recorded over the last dozen or so years. The talks were recorded at large and small conferences, parish missions, and diocesan and parish teaching sessions. They have been edited for enhanced listening clarity and comprehension. License has been granted by the speakers for this use. A CD of this program is available. Order program number 425. To place your order or for more information, phone 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506. or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. 
Putting on the Mind of Christ is presented by the Ave Maria Communications Guild and this station. This radio station is listener-supported. If you like what is offered here, we ask you to support it with your treasure. This is your host and program producer, Henry Root. Thanks for being with us on this edition of Putting on the Mind of Christ. Tune in next time for a talk about Christian concerns from the Catholic perspective. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you and your families. This is Ave Maria Radio.